Yeah, thanks for that worship. I know you talked about the heavy songs, but man, that, those are beautiful words and uh, heartfelt and so appreciate that. It's great to be with you. I am Tim Jacobs and uh, you know, before I kick off, Roger, come on up, man. Um, so oftentimes in, um, in churches, we don't take time to recognize people that, have, that are doing really great stuff. You know, we just kind of keep on going and we keep on plowing ahead. There's always another Sunday. There's always something to go after. And we don't pause and recognize great work when it's being done. And um, so one of the things that's really important to me in my role working with our pastors and churches is to make sure that they know that they're valued and that they're important. And you know, Roger mentioned that he started right about the same time I started in my role, which if you, uh, in case you didn't know, was right before one of the greatest upsets in society in a hundred years, right? No one knew how to lead a church through a pandemic. Um, There was no classes that Roger took in seminary called how to lead a church through a pandemic. He was building the airplane in the air along with the other leaders and all kinds of decisions are being made. No one knew what to do. But anyway, so I just wanted to recognize him. You know, if you're familiar um, like with law enforcement or military, anything like that, oftentimes when they recognize someone, they give them a little coin. And so we made these. These are EFCA West coins. And on the back it says, um, it's, it's a 1 Peter 5.2. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And uh, these aren't for everybody. These are for those who are doing just that and recognition of your faithfulness and your, uh, your integrity, your hard work, and your love for these men and women here. So Roger, I want to present this to you. Thanks, man. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab Mark chapter 1, and you're, as he mentioned before, your church is part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, and we are an association of about 1,500 autonomous but interdependent churches throughout the United States that believes that we're better together, and I just want to give you a little bit of an intro on that. So here's a picture of our team, and uh, you can see us. It's not me. It's We have a wonderful, fantastic team that we get to work with, and I live in Phoenix, Arizona, although I'm originally from Southern California, been in Phoenix for 20 years, started out there as a church planner a long time ago. And um, so a lot of times people ask the question, and I should show you real quick, this is the district that we cover, by the way. So we, we have parts of seven different Western states, about 200 congregations, and so we're kind of all over the place. And a lot of times people go, okay, what do you denominational people even do? Because it sounds like a really boring job, you know? Like a a, a district superintendent sounds about as exciting as a you know, mortician or something like that. And that's nothing against morticians, actually. In some ways, they may have a more exciting job. But anyway, um, so what do you guys actually do? Well, we do three things, and we would like to say we help churches more than anything else. We help churches in three ways. First of all, we help churches build and strengthen leaders. So you can see here some just several pictures of what we call regional gatherings where we'll bring pastors and leaders together and talk about issues that they're going through, figure out how to get better. Um, you know, Roger mentioned he came with us at Hume Lake. We brought a group of pastors out there just for strengthening and encouragement. And uh, we threw some hatchets and shot some guns and chopped some wood and, and gathered around a fire. And just, it was an amazing time together. And the second thing that we do is we help churches plant new churches. And so here's our church planning director, Dean Maeda. You see in the picture on the left with one of our church planners, Bill White, who planted a church there. Um, 
south of Tucson and uh, doing great called Madera Church. The next picture you see uh, guys just commissioning each other um, and uh, praying for each other to, to be sent out to start new churches. I'm excited about the new churches that we're starting here in EFCA West. And finally, we help churches reach all the people around them. You know, in our district, there's changing communities ethnically, and we want to do all we can to reach the people that God is bringing us from everywhere around the nation and around the globe. So we made heavy investments in helping our Spanish-speaking church planners get uh, seminary-level education, so we've done a lot of that to help them so that when they get up and they preach, they're, they're uh, capable to be able to really do the, the job that they're supposed to do. And I'm excited about all of the ways that we are reaching out to and helping our churches reach out to the changing communities that they have. And as you guys you know, partner with us, our whole vision is really what we want to see more than anything else. We'll know we succeeded if at the end of the day we see what happened in Acts chapter 16, verse 5, which says this. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. This is all we want to see. That's all we want to see is churches that are getting stronger and increasing in number. And so you're helping us make that happen because really we're after nothing less than the transformation of society. If we succeed... If this church prevails in this town, you should expect to see the divorce rate go down, the suicide rate go down, the depression rate go down, the teenage pregnancy rate go down, the domestic violence rate go down. And what you should see going up is a level of peace and joy and reconciliation. You should see uh, communities coming together regardless of politics or race, class, gender, all that stuff. All that stuff fades into the background because people are finding the grace and the hope of Jesus Christ. And people are seeing it like they've never seen before. But how do we get there? How, how does that actually happen? Well, I want to take you on a, a little journey today. And as I said, I work for this association of churches that's called the Evangelical Free Church of America. And it's kind of a weird name, right? Evangelical Free. It's like most people, when they hear that, they think it means free of evangelicals, right? Like gluten-free or sugar-free. In fact, sometimes that's why people come to an Evangelical Free Church. They go on the website and they see, oh, oh great, finally a church that's free of those crazy evangelicals, you know? In fact, maybe that's why some of you showed up, you know, you, you, don't, you don't realize what you're in for here. And, um, but, but, but as crazy as that sounds, we're stuck with this name, and I think there's power in these two words, evangelical and free, so I want to talk about them and recast them a little bit, and talk about what they actually mean, and why they actually matter, and what in the world they may have to do with us making a serious dent in the society in which we live. Because here's the problem with that word evangelical. In case you hadn't known, if you identify as such, as our organization does, as many of our, as our churches do, um, we have a bit of a PR problem, right? I mean, nobody likes evangelicals. The popular culture doesn't like them. The media doesn't like them. I mean, half the time, we don't even like ourselves, you know? I was preaching at this one church in Central Valley, California, and I said, you know, a lot of people, when they hear the word evangelical, they think of a white guy who drives a truck and listens to country music, votes Republican, owns a gun, and loves America. And they all went, yeah! And I was like, no, 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 no. 
No, no, that, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. No, I mean, I, I'm a white guy myself, and, and I, I had a truck at one time, and then we had kids, and I had to get rid of it and get a little car. And, and I live in Arizona, and that's, you know, until recently was kind of a red state, and I got a gun or two, and I love America, not a huge country music fan, but guess what? None of those things make me an evangelical, not one of them, and none of them make you one either. And what we've done is we have capitulated sometimes in our own thinking to what it means to actually be a Christian or maybe more specifically this idea of an evangelical. And so maybe we should actually figure out what that word means to see if it's actually worth keeping or worth digging out and aligning us to maybe something more that we should be about. So I realized, because I'm a kind of a simple guy, that all you gotta do to figure this out and maybe get to, to come back to the beginning of the value of a word like this is to go to the very first chapter of the very, very first verse and the very first chapter of the book of Mark. It's right there. And it's fascinating, because if you're Mark and you're writing the greatest story ever told, and, and this is how you decide to start off. Listen to what he says. In Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, um, the beginning of the good news. Now that word good news is, comes from the original Greek word euangelion, which is where we get our word evangelical. That's where the, so the, the core original definition of the word evangelical is the word, the phrase good news. It means good message or good news. In fact, um, ooh, the word ooh is kind of like good and angel is messenger, which we know that's what angels are, right? You know, you dress your little kids up for the Christmas play and they say, you know, we bring tidings of great joy for all the people. Your, your angels are messengers. So an evangelical is a messenger of good news that's all that it is and again we got to know that because many people who are self-proclaimed oh, i'm an evangelical start adding in politics and what they think about gun rights or immigration or donald trump or whatever else and all of a sudden the actual message of the good news gets diluted and marred and muddied and incomprehensible for those who need to hear it so right out of the gate you see um Oh yeah, so the word means good news, that's it. That's all it means. So right out of the gate, Mark's like, hey, I got good news, really, really good news. But not only is there a good message or a message, there's also a messenger and a sender of the message. Look at verse two. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's powerful imagery, by the way, crying in the wilderness, crying out. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. The Lord is coming. So right away what God does is he sends John the Baptist. And why is that? Because God, at his core, is a sending God. He's a revealing God. He's not a God that wants to hide himself from people. He wants to make himself known desperately. And so he sends people. Jesus himself said in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father is sending me, has sent me, so I am sending you. This is what he says to his disciples. He's sending, sending, sending. 
So we have this guy named Craig Ott, who's a professor at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where it's one of the schools that we have, um, our, our denomination has, and he's written a brilliant book on our mission statement, and it's called um, The Church on Mission. And he has a really powerful quote that I want you to hear about this. He says this, God himself is ascending God, a missionary God who sent prophets and angels as his messengers and who ultimately sent his son as an agent of his redemptive purposes in the world. Today, he sends the church in the power of the Spirit as his people to further his mission of redemption and restoration. I like how he captures that because those two words are really key to the good news. Good news, redemption and restoration. And listen to this last sentence. The church is indeed God's missionary people. Do you ever think about that? See, I think a lot of times when it comes to missionary, we think, oh, well, we send money to missionaries and they go to some other country. But we don't often think of the church in and of itself as a missionary people. Like this is the core of who we are is missionary people. What is that if it's not evangelical? So, okay, that, that's great, Tim. I mean, you said, okay, you know, good news. We got the good news. That's great. We should be about the good news. But what is the good news? What do we even mean by gospel? I never forget being in a room packed with pastors out in, the, in, in Atlanta, of all places, where there's like pastors everywhere. <laughs> and the guy gets up and he says to pastors, he goes, turn to the person next to you and, share, and, and explain the gospel. You can hear a pin drop. Uh... <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's like, you know, those of you guys that work for businesses where they go, hey, this is, our, this is our core message, like learn our four little things, like learn our core values, our, you know, you just have it on the, like your little elevator speech, right? I mean, this is the core of who we are and what we do. I think we should probably be clear on what it is. Well, thankfully, as we continue to walk through this passage in Mark, he gives us a clue. Now again, Here's Mark right out of the gate saying this is the greatest story you ever heard in your whole life for all of humanity for all of time. And here we've got um, John the Baptist who's sent by God. Well, what does, he, what does he do? Well, it says John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and ready for this, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The story of Jesus, of all the things he could have lead with, he could lead with, he leads with forgiveness of sin. Isn't that amazing? A God who will remove all my guilt and my shame. We just sang about it like five minutes ago. That that, that is the message that's coming into the world so that you don't have to live the rest of your life chained to your past. That you don't have to continue to walk in guilt and beat yourself up over all these things that you can't undo that you did and you know you did and everybody else knows you did and they just kind of cast a dark cloud over your life and Jesus has come to set you free from those things. And here's the thing. This God who removes our guilt and our shame and this forgiveness, this new life is available to everyone. Oh, now that's where it gets controversial. Think of the people, think of the really horrible people like the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers, right? You know what I'm saying? I'm an equal opportunity offender. But I'm just saying, because we're all split on these things, right? Those really, the people that wear masks and the people that don't wear masks, forgiveness is available even to them? Oh yeah. 
the people that voted for the other guy in the election? <sighs> How is forgiveness even possible for a person like that? You mean God wants to rescue that person too? Yeah. In fact, see, it gets even worse because it's available to everybody. Like from Antifa to the alt-right, from the homeless person to the dude on Wall Street, even that crazy FTX guy ripped off a bunch of people. God wants to save him too. And I think sometimes we, we forget that. We go, ah, oh, those people, ah, oh, these, these people that are against whatever. The gospel really isn't for them. Are you kidding me? The gospel is for everybody. Oh, by the way, I should say, it's also for, it's for everybody. The L, the G, the B, the T, and all the other letters and numbers and whatever they want to add on the back of that thing. It's getting longer and longer every day. But who, I don't care how you identify. You can identify as an alien. I don't, I don't, whatever you want to do. A fish, it doesn't matter to me. If you had a heartbeat, God sent people to tell you that forgiveness and healing and restoration is possible. And you are not beyond the love of God. That's the gospel. That's it. Let's not add a bunch of stuff to that. Let's not throw the Second Amendment in there. Let's not talk about immigration. Let's not talk about the president. Why are we do that crazy stuff? That's not the gospel. You start talking like that, nobody hears anything else you say at that point. It is true. Oh, and then, you know what? I left out the worst person. I mean, those are, you know, you, you think some of these people that you see and you're like, this is person is the reason why America's going down the drain. Okay, well, God wants to reach them, but that didn't even bring up the worst person. You. Yeah, all right. I mean, hey, it's biblical. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I don't think he was being, you know, rhetorical. He knew what he did. He knew who he was. And I think he really believed it. And I do think that when you really understand the grace of Jesus and the sin that you come to him with, I think every one of us at some point or another go, yeah, that's probably me too. I'm in that camp, right? Do you remember the moment you first realized that you, even you, were free from sin? Do you remember when you, when you first got it? Maybe you're going to church for a while and you're like singing the songs and you're hanging out with people and you get a donut and your kids are happy because they're like, oh, we like, you know, church isn't boring. This is great. We're having a good time and your marriage is getting better or whatever else and you're feeling like, but then one day it hits you. Nah, it's not just about an ethical set of rules and regulations. It is, it is going from death to life. It is being absolved of your sin completely, 100%, taken away and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when that first hit you what your heart did. That you wasn't just a clean slate. You were given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, do you remember when it, when it, when it first got you? Maybe it hasn't gotten you yet, but you know what? It should, but those of you that it has, do you remember what that moment was like when you're like, wait a second, this is bigger than I thought? We have this, this uh, book that we have our pastors read if they want to be a, uh, an ordained EFCA pastor. And it's, uh, we include this quote from this guy, John Stott. This is a good one. Listen to this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself only where God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man 
and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. I mean, that's good stuff. That's our message. That is our message. And nothing, nothing, nothing else. If that didn't fire you up, nothing will. It's universal in its impact. First Peter 2.24, he himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. And I think sometimes we think by our own wounds we'll be healed. That's what the world thinks. If I just beat myself up enough, if I just do enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds, if I just you know, live down my, my, my past, as though you can somehow do that. No, 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 God isn't asking you for your own wounds. He has offered his own son and it's his wounds that heal you. Now look, if people want to hate Christians, let us, let them hate Christians for that. Not, not, not the other crazy stuff that goes on. We don't start adding stuff. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of life because it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. There's power in that message, in that message alone. Now again, I'm not telling you, I'm not, I'm not advocating that you go around and try to convince people that the word evangelical doesn't mean what they think it means. I don't care about that. I'm not advocating that people put it on their church sign or whatever. That's not, that's not what's important. What's important is that you know that when Mark says the beginning of the good news, that you know what that good news is and what it isn't. We've got to be clear on that. And we've got to encounter it and re-encounter it and re-encounter it and re-encounter it. It's really not that difficult, but it needs to be re- revisited over and over again. Because it's not just about redemption. Because remember I told you that quote before, he, he said it really well, it's redemption and restoration. It's not just about redemption, it's also about restoration. Because it says in um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So there's this guy, this Japanese-American artist, you may have heard of him, his name's Makoto Fujimura. And he wrote a book called Art and Faith. And in it, he talks about the um, invention of an, the Japanese art form of kintsugi. And the way that he tells the story is basically there was this tea master in Japan who, he's a tea master, so he made tea better than any of you could. Um, so he's very good at it. And so one day he's making tea for this warlord, Japanese warlord guy. So the servant of the warlord is bringing the tea to the warlord in this priceless, irreplaceable teapot, right? And as he's bringing him the tea, he trips, whatever, and falls and shatters the pot into five pieces on the ground. The warlord is very upset, and he's about to exact judgment upon this young servant presumably to kill him. And right before he does, the tea master steps in and kind of sings this little song of redemption over the whole thing. And while he's doing it, he basically says, I will bear responsibility for the terrible mistake of this servant. And he picks up the pieces of the pot and he glues them back together and he lines the cracks with gold so that the pot is more beautiful restored than it was before it was broken. 
And Fujimura says, this became the basis of Kintsugi, which is beauty through brokenness. And that really is the picture of what God does with us. Because when God rescues you from your sin, he doesn't just forgive you of your sin, but he creates a new life. He gives you a new life and he puts the pieces of your life back together so that you are more beautiful restored than you were before you were broken. Now we start thinking about what that looks like in your own life and in the lives of the people around you whose lives are broken and shattered. And we go, oh, that's really sad. You see this broken and shattered person. Do we see what, what, but, but what, what could God do with a person like that? What has God done with me? What could God do with a person whose life has just been obliterated? Does he have the power to not only rescue that person, but line the cracks of their lives with gold? And so they just glimmer and shimmer. And so, you know, again, as Fujimura said, when, they, when this pot was brought to this warlord, he was just blown away by its beauty. And that's what God does with people. And so, maybe there's someone in your life who needs to hear that. I know there's someone in your life who needs to hear that. Maybe you need to hear it. So we gotta get this message right. So, I think it's important to clarify this, and you know, that's one of the things I, I wanna do is clarify this word so that, again, you don't have to go around I'm not advocating that you go around and tell everybody this is what it, it doesn't, that's not so important. What is important is that you are clear on what the gospel is and what it actually means to be an evangelical, a messenger of good news, not bad news, because we often think we're messengers of bad news, right? It's bad news. Well, the default setting is bad news for humanity. There's death and decay and destruction and sin and all kinds of horrible things. What is not the default is the redemption of God, which is the good news. But we also have another word as well, because it's not just evangelical, but we mash these two words together and we say the word free. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, basically what that means is Foothills Church. Um, your church is autonomous. So, so, I mean, I appreciate what Roger said. He said some very nice things about me. But at the end of the day, this is your church. You are self-governed. You have, you have your leadership and everything else. And no denominational guy can come in and tell you what to do. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. I like that. I don't like this top-down kind of stuff. It's more really of a bottom-up kind of a thing. But see, so there's a lot of churches like, well, we're free. We can do whatever we want, which is great. But see, that's only half the picture. Because with freedom comes what? Yes, you're sharp people. <laughs> Responsibility. So you can have the keys of the car, but you better know how to drive the car or you're gonna lose the keys and the car, right? So that's what happens. Now, the way I see it, if you're a messenger of the good news of redemption and restoration that only comes through Jesus Christ, that means that then you are also given the freedom to get that message into the lives of the people around you. And no one can tell you how to do that. That's up to you and God. But you should be the expert because you're the one that is in the area. And so when you say, well, what does that word free actually mean and why does it matter? So I think I've already kind of demonstrated to you the power of the word evangelical. If we get that word right it, and, we get, and we're clear on it, it should revolutionize our own lives and our own hearts in a way that just makes it um, so attractive for anyone who's in that place where they need the touch of God. But also that word free has power in it too because it, it's now, I, I have this message and now I'm responsible to get it out into the people in my sphere. So I thought about this and everybody is in like their own little zone, right? And so 
you have a, you have a, um, a little zone. You know, you're in Rancho Santa Margarita. It's not a bad zone. And you're, but you don't, you're not in Idaho or Arizona or, you know, LA or whatever else. You're in your little spot. And that's okay, because the spot you're in, you own. So I would say, I would define free this way. If you're free, what that means is you own your zone. You take responsibility for the zone that you're in, whatever that zone is. And so you break it down even small. You look at your own family. You look at the people that you work around. You look at the people that are in your, in your sphere. And you say to God, God, I got this. You've sent me into this place and this time because the Bible says in Acts that, that he has ordained us to live in certain uh, seasons, certain places and times throughout history. So you weren't born in 1705, thank God, you know, and you weren't born in some crazy place. You were born in a pretty nice place in a pretty nice time to live in history overall, comparatively speaking, and God did that on purpose because you have been sent. You are sent. I am sent. And so what you do, you say, God, all right, thank you for putting me here. I got it. I got a zone. We'll handle it. We'll make sure that everybody that's within earshot and life shot will hear and find the same truth that I've found. At least we'll give it the best shot that we can. We'll make sure everybody knows the joy and the hope that we found. So it means to own your zone. You don't ask yourself the question, how is our church doing? You ask yourself the question, how is our city doing? How is our town doing? It's a different question, isn't it? There's pain in our town. I mean, there's some things that we can do um, you know, on the surface, but the deep pain we already know is spiritual. I gotta tell you, everywhere I go, everywhere I go in every context that I'm in, I, am, I just like over and over and over convinced that the deepest problem in life is spiritual. It's spiritual. So there we go. And, that, and to be able to do that, it, it, involves, it involves urgency, creativity, intentionality, and boldness in, in terms of how we approach this message and our task as being sent by God. We already established this. Jesus sends his disciples in the world. You're a disciple of Jesus if you're a Christian. You've been sent to the world, right? You're not in a garrison, right? You are out into the field. You have been forward deployed. So let me give you a little history lesson. So in Sweden in 1726, this Protestant, not Catholic, Protestant Swedish church passed a law called the Conventicle Law. And what that basically meant was um, that people were starting to gather in small groups to study the Bible because they had the printing press and they could start getting access to the Bible on their own. And the Protestant state church, the state Protestant church didn't like it. So they passed a law banning home Bible studies. You could not study the Bible in your own home. That's what they did. Under serious penalties too. Very bad penalties. So the founders of the evangelical free church, your kind of spiritual forefathers, so to speak, that you could draw your heritage lineage back to in large part, they heard this and they're like, we're not doing that. You can't tell us we can read the Bible, where we can read the Bible. Who are you? We're not gonna listen to you. We're gonna read the Bible whenever and wherever and however we want. So they're like, Dr. Seuss, man. They're like, we will read it in a house. We will read it with a mouse. We will read it in a car. We will read it in a bar. Here, there, we will read it everywhere. And that's what they did. You don't really, you, you come from a long line of rebels and rule breakers. You do. And rogues, yeah. They're like, we're not, who are you guys? 
And so they were like incredibly creative for that time. They, they leaned on technology, you know, like the printing press and whatever else, which again was the new thing back then. They developed all this stuff to be able to give out to people because they're like, you know, this isn't, the state church thing isn't working. And they were extremely risky. And then a lot of them, they ended up coming over here to America because they, well, they fled that stuff too. And they're like, we're not gonna do that. And so I love that story because these are real people living in a real time who are very convinced about the truth of the gospel and they, didn't, and they said, we're not gonna listen to rules outside the Bible telling us what we can and can't do. But my problem is, as I go to churches all over our district, I run into people who are like passing the same kind of laws that the people that founded this whole thing left to get away from. Well, you can't do church like that. Why not? Well, because this is the way we do it. Well, show me where it says you got to do like that in the Bible. Well, right? And all of a sudden you got people, well, church shouldn't be like this. Church shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't be spending time like we should. The services need to be like this and meet at this time. And this is what it really means. What do you know? And all you're doing is you're adding stuff back into the gospel and the strategy that's not biblical at all in the name of being biblical. Well, we're a biblical church. What does that mean? <laughs> People all the time. All the time. And so it's, it, it hinders the actual mission, which is a little scarier and a little wilder because what people want to do is they want to always gravitate any organization to where they can have some type of control predictability, because it's safe that way. But when you are about the mission and you're about the gospel and you go, look, let's just do whatever we have to, you're sort of being truly unbiblical. And that's really up for debate a lot of times too. Well, this is, you know, it's, we, it's, and, that, and if you ever wonder why churches are so often ineffective, it's that's the reason why. So this is what your ancestors did. And I guess I want to ask what happened to that spirit, you know? What happened to that bold, adventurous, risky, daring spirit? Like, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's try it anyway, right? It's kind of fun. Let's see what happens. Let's light the match. And <laughs> could be a little crazy. When was the last time you did something crazy for the gospel? Yeah, all right, good. <laughs> but I, I, again, I'm just, just, it's just notes from the field, guys. This is just what I'm, I'm, you know, I go around, and I look at this stuff, and I see we have so many churches in incredible areas all over some of the most influential and, and um, amazing places that everybody wants to live, and, and, and yet it's just like a fortress mentality. And so part of my role in this job that I have is to try to help kind of um, um, instigate some stuff, I guess. So anyway... Then what happens, in, and I'm going to add one more because it was Mark 1 to 4, but I threw an extra verse because um, Roger said I had, I had a, more time than I usually get at other places because you guys are better people. <laughs> <laughs> so verse 5, so what happens? So, so, so John's out, or, yeah, John the Baptist is doing all this stuff. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There was a revival. What was happening? What was happening? The ground was being prepared for the first coming of Jesus. We got to prepare the ground for the second coming of Jesus. And you might be saying, well, you know, dude, that's easy for you to say. I mean, you're this denominational guy. I mean, what do you do? You just hang out with pastors all the time. And you're probably not thinking that, but that's the little voice in my head, you know. <laughs> 
So, um, but, but I, I want you to know I take this very seriously in my own heart, and um, I, I so love the message of the gospel and, and believe that it needs to be out there as much as possible that I realize in my position it's hard to, to actually live out as like maybe a local church pastor could or maybe one of you could who actually works 40 hours a week around people that need to hear the message, right? So one of the joys that I get to have in my life in addition to doing this is um, I'm serving in the Air Force Reserve as a chaplain and I'm in a unit in uh, Tucson and I absolutely love it. So I'm gonna be there next weekend, but I go once a month and I go and I jump into an environment that is um, wonderful and beautiful and amazing, but it's chaotic and is challenging and it is stressful and all kinds of people come into this unit and dealing with all kinds of relational stuff and spiritual stuff and, and I'm in the mix with all of that. And when I was saying earlier that the, wherever where I go, I'm convinced that the root of every problem is spiritual. I'm reminded every 30 days when I see um, wonderful people trying to navigate the difficulties of, um, of a reserve unit in the military that so much of what goes on can be traced back to the things that go on in here, right? And so, and what God is doing with individual lives. But, so it's a joy of mine to be able to have one foot of my life in that world. But the reason I bring it up is because it's a, this unit that I'm with is a combat search and rescue unit. And I mean, I'm just their chaplain, I'm not one of them. These guys, these guys are like the parachute, uh, the PJs and helicopter pilots, and they do some pretty cool stuff. And they have a, uh, a motto, our unit has a motto. And the motto is this, these things we do that others may live. And every time I walk past that, it's emblazoned in this metal fabricated statue they have out in the front of the building. These things we do that others may live. And I wonder, Foothills Church, when you look at your life and you look at what this church does, could you say the same thing? Because you know, these guys can take care of people's physical needs and they do a good job with that. They rescue a lot of people in some crazy situations and all kinds of stuff, but that's the physical. We've been called to help people escape eternal death. And so, can we as a church say these things we do? We do what we do. We are what we are so that others may live. You're good. You've been rescued. If you're a Christian, you've been rescued. You've been brought in. God's still putting you back together. That's fine, but he's redeemed you. These things we do. When we, when we think about where Roger and the leadership here is taking this church, it's so easy to go, well, this is my church. This is my seat. This is my building. These are my programs. These are my kids. This is my... This is what I think church should be. Yeah, well, maybe what we ought to do is say what we want to see is a place that is doing things so that others may live. Can you think of a more noble aim 
or purpose for any church. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these men and women. They are, uh, they are your treasures. You bought them with your blood. If there's anyone here today who has heard this message of the gospel for the first time, maybe a brand new person sitting here, maybe someone that's been here for a few weeks and just today something hit. Right where you are, just bow your head and in your heart just say, God, today I get it. I'm done playing games. (laughs) I'm done pretending I'm a good person. I'm done pretending I can impress you with all of my great qualities. I deeply need your grace. And if you have been, if you have sent yourself and you've been sending people to try to reach out to me, but you've sent your son to pay my debt, I'll take it. I'll take it. Today I leave my life of sin. Today I become a child of God. Thank you for your overwhelming grace. God, may we be captivated by this message. And may we be captivated by the possibility. If we only knew what it took to redeem us, if we could somehow trace the lineage of who told us and who told them and what dollars and effort investment was put in so that someone would share with us the message that would change our eternity, God, I think we would just be humbled beyond anything. So God, thank you for redeeming us and sending us. Thank you that we can capture the essence of what it means to be people who are messengers of good news and for setting us free. Fill our hearts with excitement and daring, risk, courage. Time is short. In Jesus' name, amen.